0: And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.
1: Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky.
0: Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office.
2: Welcome to the D&D Fitness Radio Podcast, brought to you by your hosts, Don Saladino from New York City and Derek Hansen from Vancouver, Canada. In episode 49, we speak with Sue Falsoni.
1: Introducing Sue Falsoni, an Italian, correct? An An Italian, Italian,
3: Italian, Italian, Sicilian, fellow Paizan.
1: Me and you, baby. I love it. So uh, Sue, I was going through your resume. I mean, it's pretty, pretty, pretty incredible. I mean, you were a, a master's in human movement, PT, athletic trainer. I didn't realize that you worked for AP for a while.
3: Gosh, I was there for thirteen years. I was Mark's first physical therapist.
1: Some way, and I went to the one in Tempe, Arizona. Was, yeah. was that where you were?
3: Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was started there in oh one. Gosh, like the minute he opened in two thousand and one. And I, think
1: I was out there probably their last year out there, which in yes. Tempe. 10 years right
3: absolutely easily 10 years
1: at least I remember I remember Nick Winkleman was there he was running us through everything it was yeah just a, such a small world um I know, you're, it's the, so crazy. you're the first female athlete trainer in any of the four major sports the,
3: yeah I was the first head athletic
1: trainer <laughs> female yeah, head really. athletic trainer. yeah yeah that's pretty MLB NFL NHL NBA so you are a legend we got to admit that <laughs> Like-
3: <laughs> I almost choked on my water. Uh, yeah, it's kind of crazy that that. Uh, yeah, the only record that can ever be broken, right?
1: I love it. I love it. Can you can you kind of <laughs> go into your, can you go into your history, how you got into the business a little bit, and just kind of talk to us about your progression, some of the obstacles you hit. I mean, I just kind of want to hear what you what you went through.
3: Yeah. Um. You know, I did my PT school first. So that was my undergraduate degree. Then I went back to grad school at UNC and got my athletic training degree there. Um, And then I um, broke up with my boyfriend. My life was over. Moved out to Arizona, like just on a total whim and randomly met Mark in 2001. And so I just like showed up, cold called him, like read an article about him training Nomar, cold called him, showed up on his doorstep and yeah, worked for him for 13 years. And then During that time, started working with the Dodgers um, with athletes performance. And then that just sort of started as a consulting gig and then just sort of turned its way into becoming the head athletic trainer for them, which was crazy. Um, And then becoming the um, head athletic trainer for the US men's national team for soccer. um, And then really have just sort of been teaching the last three years. So now associate professor in athletic training at AT Still and then um, doing my own education stuff. And so you know, I mean, road, you know, roadblocks or stuff I, like anybody, right. It's all hard work. It's nose, nose to the grindstone. It's, um, you know, I never really had a lot of issues with the female thing. It's just not something, and everybody likes to talk about the whole female and professional sport thing. And, um, you know, I think I just always gave respect. And I think if you give respect, you get respect. And so I have not, I mean, you know, I've had, I have my stories that I won't share, yes. um, you know, because it just doesn't help anybody. Um, right kind of focus on the positives and I've, I've just had pretty good um pretty good experiences with it all like the guys the athletes they don't care anything they don't care about your gender they don't care about your color they don't care about your hair color right you like you could be purple as long as you can help them ethically that's all they care about you know, um, it's, so it's always been the least of my worries
1: you know it's tough because you know i can't say anything like that because i'm a man and i'm not a woman and i've never gone through you know, what a lot of women in sports have to go through. I mean, I, I totally respect your um, your comments on that. And you've been very successful as a female. You're almost from the looks of your resume, you've kind of started all this in a way. You know, you've you started with that step into women in sports. And I think it was this morning, when I say women in sports, I mean in, in athletic training. Um, this morning I was watching ESPN and I forgot the coach. She was um she was pretty upset and she was talking about how, you know, you know, women in power only make up 5% of the CEOs in, you know, in, in finance and business today are women. And we, you know, we, we have to make more of a stand. What's your opinion. Do you feel like more women? I mean, is it, is it, this may sound like a very general question and I apologize, but do you think it's because a lot of men out there, they are sexist and they don't want to hire women? Or do you think it's because a lot of women don't want to go out and, and, and Put their foot forward and try and get that position.
3: Yeah, I I think it's really interesting. I think Sheryl Sandberg. I I read that book called Lean In, and you know, in a very naive way, I was really unaware of some of the issues that women face. And I know that sounds ridiculous coming from a woman, but I I grew up in an Italian family. I mean, you know, Italian women are strong. And and there there tougher was than just,
1: the, tougher than the guys. I absolutely tougher
3: than the guys. Oh my gosh, my father, the, being the youngest, that man couldn't do anything for himself, right? Like my my aunts and my mom and my grandmother. I mean, they were strong women, and there just was no there was never any doubt from minute one of my memories that like I couldn't do whatever I wanted to do. My aunt was um she was was an Italian and in the forties met a Jewish man. Um, Italian Catholic, converted to Judaism, moved away from home, like that stuff just didn't happen back then. And, you know, that's what she did. And she started her own clothing business. And um, so I've just always been surrounded by amazingly strong examples of women. And so I think for me, that was huge. And what I've realized is that a lot of women don't have that, number one. Number two, I think in that book, Lean In, what Cheryl talks about, which I think is really interesting, um, is that a lot of women take themselves out of the workforce before they're even in it, meaning they're already planning to have children and they're planning to get married and planning to have kids and planning to have a family. And so sometimes maybe they don't always go for those positions because they think, Oh, well in two or three years, I'm going to have a family. So I'm not going to go down that road because they have just sort of different goals and that's totally fine. Right. I've never had that goal of wanting to have children or, or whatever. And so it was just sort of um, a really natural thing for me to sort of drive my career, where I think a lot of times women, have other goals and that's totally fine. Totally cool. But I think we take ourselves out of the workforce sooner than we need to sometimes because we think, Oh, well, why bother going for that position and I'm just going to have a family in two years. So I thought I that was a really interesting point.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, listen, I love it. I, I, I would, you know, I'd love to see more female CEOs. I'd love to see more female coaches, uh, you know, more, you, you know, even in, you know, even with my gym, I don't want to say I've been criticized, but it's a very, I mean, from a, from a trainer standpoint, I've got 11 coaches and I think, you know, two of them are females. Mm-hmm. So it's very easy on the outside to turn around and to say, well, you're not hiring women and you know, blah, blah, blah. And kind of bark down my bark, bark at my face. But the reality is, is I probably get for every 10 resumes I get in, nine of them are guys. Right. <laughs> so I'm hardly, hardly put it at a disadvantage and I'm sitting here and I'm like, I, you know, at times I feel like I'm getting picked on, but, um, you know, I mean, it's some really good points. I mean, it just, it seems like you were just, you know, this is what you wanted to do. And, 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 you know, you came from a very, you know, strong family and you, and you stepped in there and you didn't take any shit. Cause I'm sure there were some circumstances where, yeah, listen, you get made feel, uh, felt uncomfortable. I think that's a normal thing. Correct.
3: Yeah, absolutely. For sure. And I, you know, it, I've, I've never been in a, in a position where it, it was something that I couldn't handle, um, or, you know, I know definitely women have been put in some really uncomfortable positions and, and, and I've been put in uncomfortable positions too, but I've always been able to handle it. I've always been able to, um, um, to nip it in the bud and just sort of, um, I, I don't know, I've, I've just always been able to handle it, whatever situation I was in. And I'm grateful that I haven't been put in an unsafe uh, situation that some women I know have. Um, I, I haven't had that experience. And, and so I think, again, for me, I walked into that into those situations, there are, you know, with an NFL team, there's 100 men. With a baseball team, there's 40 men. I didn't walk in with the expectation of those 40 men changing because I was in the room. I was in their space. And so I kept to the athletic training room. I very much kept to um, kept to the spaces. Where, you know, I didn't hang out in the locker room. I, I didn't, um, you know, I went in there. I, I needed to do what I needed to do. And then I would get back out. And so, I respected their space, and then therefore they respected mine. But I gave a lot of respect. I took the time to meet their wives. I took the time to meet their families, um, so everybody was comfortable with me being around. And I knew that I had to. I had to make those efforts. I couldn't just walk in the room and magically expect a culture that's been around for a hundred years from a baseball standpoint to change just because I walked into the into the training room for the first time in a century. You know that, that's just an unrealistic expectation. And so I just took measures to make sure that I respected their space in a way that I wanted them to respect my space too.
2: Do you think Sue that were there any uh, mentors or people that influenced you and gave you that confidence to do that? I know one of my friends uh, works for Canadian cycling is a sports science director. And she says she observed how the coaches interact with the athletes. And a lot of times the coaches will say to the male athletes, like, Hey, have you thought about coaching? But they don't necessarily have that conversation with the female athletes um, did you have somebody who was kind of pushing you and, and putting you into that, that position of of confidence and, and, you know, just feeling comfortable?
3: Yeah, I, I think so. I think right from the beginning of my athletic training career, I went to the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill and, um, and there were amazingly strong women that held very high positions at the D1 level. So CB Len, Meredith Petschauer, Sally Mays, um, um, Terry Joe. uh, uh, And so there's these women that right out of the gate, from my minute one of being an athletic trainer, that were um, just absolute rock stars. And so I was like, oh, okay, yeah, athletic trainers. Just like there were men there that were rock stars, Bill Prentice and Rob Schneider and and Scott O'Leary and Dan Hooker, like all these guys that were just amazing mentors to me. So I really had a very great mix of male and female mentors at UNC. So right out of the gate, again in my athletic training career, and a very what probably has given me a really naive perspective is of course women can be in those positions. I had multiple women right in front of me that were, had really, really high positions in, in D1 sports. So it just, it didn't even occur to me that it, it occurred to me as much as my eye color, like, Oh, I can't get that job. Cause I have blue eyes. Like what a ridiculous statement. Right. And so I really thought of my gender in the same way because I had amazing examples in in my family unit, I had amazing examples at the D1 level. And so why why wouldn't I think I could have whatever job I wanted?
2: Yeah, that's a good point. Like I everybody I've talked to, like a very good friend of mine was a track coach at University of Hawaii and we asked her questions about this and she said, "I don't really I didn't have the obstacles, but I think I was in a good environment and I had good people around me and I think that's the key. It's not that sports is bad for females, it's just get into a good situation and recognize it.
3: Yeah, um, absolutely. And there's definitely positions that I, I know everyone likes to talk about the positions that I've held, but I mean, we could have a whole podcast on the positions I didn't get. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that people think like, Oh, she's gotten every opportunity she's ever ever gone for. And and that's definitely not the case. And, and I know that there's positions that I didn't get, um, most likely because I was a female and, and those are just things that I've not chosen to focus on or, Discuss or talk about because I prefer to talk about the experiences that I have had and the and the opportunities that I did receive and the preparedness and, and how prepared I was to um, to dominate those opportunities when they came my way right and so I, I think it's just about for me that the story I I choose to tell which is really positive. I mean, overall, everyone has negative days, right, or negative experiences in their life, but overall, my journey has been a really, really positive one, and I think that's the story that I want to share with young women who are, who don't have the family unit that I have, or, or who didn't have um, the examples that I have. Like, I have women, young women reach out to me all the time, and I email back every single one of them, because I recognize oh, everybody didn't have that situation that I had, so I wanted to make, I really feel strongly and passionate that that now that is one of my purposes is just sort of to help those women and, um and, and be a mentor for them and, and, and be an example for them. And so, you know, I choose to be that, that positive example for sure. Yeah.
2: Would well, you, would you be like, I ask this question a lot, I, even for male strength and conditioning coaches, like I'm actually pushing them to be more on the medical side, the perform, the PT side, the, uh, because I, you know, there's some things in strengthening and conditioning are still a little like, eh, but um with females, would you tend to push them more towards the traditional sort of physical therapy as opposed to, and I know there's a lot more women getting involved in head strength and conditioning positions like Andrea Hootie And um, there's some great stories there, even in the NFL. What, what, what has been your experience?
3: Yeah. um, You know, I think that, um, I think a lot of times people have women sort of going towards that medical side because sometimes We think that we always have to lead by example, which of course we do. But I mean, in order for, sometimes people think, oh, in order for me to be an effective strength coach with a football player, I need to be able to bench press 300 pounds or deadlift, you know, 500 pounds. And that's not the case. If I, as long as I can do, my goal has always been do everything with a bar, be able to demonstrate everything with a bar, demonstrate the technique and I can do three reps of pretty much any movement to one side. If you ask me to do a fourth rep or go to the opposite direction, I'm screwed, right? But that's the key to coaching. <laughs> <laughs> Luke Richardson taught me that very, very early on. He's like, the key to coaching is three reps to one side. And so then like I walk back and then I... Re- <laughs> 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 it's really funny. I
1: love it. I love it. I love right? It. And
3: so I think as a woman to be in the weight room, you've just got to be comfortable. I've never felt like I've had to demonstrate you know, how to, to snatch 200 pounds or how to deadlift 300 pounds. It's just not been my goal. If I can do it with a bar um, and I can demonstrate technique, that's all it has to be in my opinion.
1: You know, and I, and I totally agree with you. I mean, unfortunately, when you're, when you're speaking to the masses and you see this, and again, I'm going to bring this up, Derek, and we, I think it's almost like customary Derek that we, that I bring this up with every single guest that we have on, but with social media nowadays and how, you know, a lot of the attention goes to people who have their shirt off or the woman chilling yeah. those glutes and they're, they're immediately an authority. And, you know, I was, we were, I was joking around with Mike Boyle the other day. He, he, he put a post up and he's like, if someone saw me on the beach, I'd be the last one that they came to <laughs> asking about strength and conditioning. And I, I turn around and I comment, I mean, Mike, you'd be the first one I'd go off to like laughing, but you no, know, it, it really is kind of sad how, you know, it, it yes. And, I do it a little bit. You know, I got to play the game a little bit. I live in that gray area of like, you know, working with celebrities and then working with athletes and loving the stuff that like Charlie Weingroff does or Derek does. But on the other hand, understanding that, you know, the masses out there want to look good with a shirt off. So I'm really in this, I'm in purgatory, I always call it. It's like I'm being pulled in two different directions. <laughs> Everyone on both ends are fighting with each other. But what's your wheelhouse? What do you, what do you feel because you do wear a lot of hats and you are someone that, is very respected in the industry. You're someone that's incredibly intelligent. And I think any smart strength coach on the planet would come to you and ask you a question. But what's the area that you're either most passionate about or you feel like, um, I don't even want to say the most capable, but you feel like if you were a little bit better in one in one category, what would that be?
3: Yeah, I, I think, um, it not to have a shameless plug for my book, but I, I think that space of that bridging the gap from rehab to performance is really where I live. I don't really do a whole lot of post-surgical rehabilitation anymore. Um, and I just don't have a space to sort of live in the weight room anymore. And so really where I'm kind of living now and kind of have lived for the last couple of years is when guys are playing and they're, they're functional out on the court or they're functional out on the field, um, but they don't feel good, right? We, we know that there's people playing all the time who just don't feel good. And so how do we maximize their performance? How do we help from a recovery standpoint? How do we teach and break down movement patterns um, you know, how do we make them better movers in general? And how do we break down fundamental movement patterns of linear movement, multidirectional movement? Um, and then maybe how do we modify what they're doing in the weight room in order to, again, maximize their performance? So I feel like right now I just, and I have lived in that space for a really long time, but that's sort of where I, I am now is that space of guys are performing, but they don't feel great. How can we make them feel better to perform better is sort of really I think where I am living a lot right now.
1: What do you use, what do you use from a screening process? Like what's your, what's your, what, what's your typical, what's your typical process from the, or as Derek says process, from the <laughs> moment that you end up uh, meeting with a, with a client, like what step-by-step, step, how do you run them through things?
3: Yeah. Uh, my, my very first thing, which I think people really discount as something that's not that important, but um, is I talk to them. I mean, I probably spend 30 minutes in a subjective and just finding out every injury that they've had, um, every, anything that they're dealing with right now, um, things that they have felt that has helped. I mean, research definitely shows that patient perception definitely dictates how they feel. So if I'm talking with someone and, and they tell me that they've used cupping and it didn't really help. Well, I'm not going to use cupping with them because they already have a negative perception, right? And so, or if someone says, oh yeah, I've had needling done before. That's fantastic. I love it. Okay, great. Like I've, I'm already going to be successful if I use needles because they have a positive perception. So, um, I just find out a lot about what they've done, what's helped, what has not helped. Um, and really take the time to listen to them, which, uh, which sadly, like a lot of people just don't listen to their clients. Um, they don't listen to their goals. Uh, and I think that's it too, is really making sure. I think we assume that a basketball player's ultimate goal is to play basketball. And that's not always the case, right? Especially as they start getting older, they've got families, they want to do other things. And so making sure that I'm aligned with their goals, not what my perception of their goal is. So to me, I think that's number one is interviewing your client in a really, really strong way, because um, they're gonna tell you 90% of what works for them. And then finding out everything too, from sleep to nutrition, and are these things that I'm gonna be able to help handle, or do I need to call in a consultant to help deal with it nutritionally? I mean, I can talk basics on nutrition, but you know, if someone's really struggling or, or feels like um, uh, it, you know I need to bring in somebody, I'll, I'll just call in a consultant to do that. And so really trying to figure out, okay, what other pieces do we need to bring into play? their strength coach, what's going on there? Um, how, how are they communicating there? And then looking at what they're already doing and looking at their programs and seeing if there's anything they can modify. From a, from a actual movement standpoint, I don't do anything more exciting than everybody else is doing, right? Everybody's doing FMS, SFMA, LMNOP, right? Like whatever sort of just works for you, I think from a movement screen standpoint works for me. I'm not fancy, the people have full joint range of motion. Um, And do they have the capacity to move through that full range of motion if they don't um, Then that might be a problem. But at the same time I've got to determine are these guys in season or are they out of season because I I tell a story in my book where I was in an in-season situation and I was evaluating a guy and he didn't have full elbow range of motion So, you know, I, I think I'm gonna come in and fix his elbow. So I give him full elbow extension He was lacking probably 15 degrees of elbow extension so mid-season, I work and do manual therapy and give this guy full elbow extension. And then sure enough, he's throwing down and in and he's hitting every right-handed batter because now all of a sudden he's releasing the ball right. 15 degrees right later on. And so, yes, for full joint health, is it the right thing to do to give him full elbow extension? Absolutely, but not in an in-season situation. So I've got to determine, okay, do they have full joint range of motion? Do they have the capacity to utilize it? Can they load that joint range of motion? And if they can't, are we in a time period where I can fix those things? If we're not in a time period that I can fix those things, then I just need to sort of manage pain um, and and do very, very little. I've learned in an in-season situation. In an off-season situation, that's when I can begin to make some major changes.
1: You know, it's interesting that you uh, that you bring that up. That was one of my one of my questions that I had jotted down. But I was I, I worked with a um, an athlete. I want to say about seven eight years ago. One of the best NFL um, uh, NFL players. Let's just go that far. And um, when I when I saw him in the weight room, he was legitimately doing almost everything wrong. Um, even on even on the field when we went, and I'm not, I'm not a sprint coach, I'm not an agility coach, but I was even able to pick up things on the turf that he was doing that I was just shaking my head at. And, I, and it was at a time in my life, yes, more immature, less knowledgeable. <laughs> and I came to realize later on that maybe by fixing him, that can actually screw him up. I mean, what's your opinion on that?
3: Yeah, a hundred percent. People always talk about inefficient movement patterns. And my point is, compensatory movement patterns are extremely efficient. When we start looking at the nervous system, um, which is my whole talk for Perform Better this year, the nervous system, that's what it's all about, right? When we change our sensory input, we're going to change our motor output. And so when we have a certain motor output for a long period of time, and that becomes ingrained in us, it becomes extremely efficient. When I change that motor pattern or attempt to alter it, um, I'm I am giving the body more inefficiency, so it's actually going to take more uh, neural pathways in order to complete a task. The, the you know that phrase "you can't teach an old dog new tricks" is is kind of true. It's really difficult to do that. So you throw the body in this absolute state of neurological chaos, and then you're also stressing out their biomechanical system, their musculoskeletal system as well. And so you're just setting them up for injury. So. I learned really fast, really early on, um, that you can absolutely jack somebody up <laughs> if if you attempt to try to make them perfect movers. Um, they're they're really efficient with their compensatory patterns, so you've got to be careful when you start messing. Eric, because that
1: happened in run. Has that happened with any of your sprinters? Have you turned around and have you actually changed technique and seen them get slower, even though you've gotten them to become a more efficient runner?
2: Um, I think what Sue had said before was very key with all this it's all contextual like you're not going to make these changes to somebody in season you're not going to do it to a vet Um, but if you have somebody who's younger um, and like I always use a lot of return to play like injury scenarios as a chance to work on these things because I know it's not this forced timeline I have some time to work with them it's more one-on-one whereas if you're working with a team um, and yeah you're you're in the last few weeks before playoffs like you know yeah. tape it up like you know like, get <laughs> that's in there so I, yeah it. <laughs> yeah but i but I, I i in all my talks i talk about like natural selection is like probably the most efficient way of getting these people to the top and who am i to say like i was involved in that like they're great because they're you know that's how it worked out so
1: So, what about what about the the whole uh, you know minimalistic approach, which I know for years you know we all all the strength coaches were talking about, and we were talking about, and it was, you know, you you almost become a little nervous because it is, you know, we are adding stress to these athletes' life, and I think General Pop doesn't realize that training is still a stress, and there's that fine line of doing too much or too little. But when you're working with an athlete that's you know making twenty million bucks a year, I mean, you are, in my opinion, skating a fine line of too much or too little and so where do you live are you always kind of playing it a little bit safe and and, and downsizing a little bit or do you feel like no you know you want to push it a little bit you want to take it to the edge a little bit because you still seasons long I mean especially with golfers who I work with a lot 10 months a year they're in season so Mm -hmm. what's the off-season training like there really is no off-season training right
3: Right, right, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great question, right? And I think that's that's sort of one of the holy grails of training, right? How how much is too much? And and so I think for me, it's about load, and it's about the body's ability to manage that 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 internal right that load or that internal stress. And so, um, to me, volume, right? Like a lower intensity, more volume, but the whole two sets, right? I'm a, a physical therapist. By, by heart, by t- trade. And so I love three sets of 10 and two sets of eight or two sets of 12. Well, all that does is just add volume onto someone. And very rarely does an athlete need more volume, right? And so I'm a huge believer in training for intensity, right? Six sets of one, four sets of one, four sets of two, whatever it may be, especially in season, less volume, more intensity. Like there's no point in training somebody to be slower. Um, and and just adding volume to their day um and so i'm a huge believer in in being intense being short let's not add a ton of volume but let's train them to be fast let's train them to be powerful one time you know times four times five whatever it may be and then move on right like let's let's cut the volume but that's that's tough to do right because everybody's afraid to move mass everybody's afraid to move it with speed when they're in an in-season situation but you know in my opinion I, just adding three sets of 10 of, of low volume or, or of low weight stuff doesn't teach them to be powerful. It doesn't teach them to be strong. It doesn't teach them really to do anything. In fact, it's probably teaching them to be slower. And in my opinion, that extra volume is just not advantageous for anybody.
2: Right. Uh, right. Totally yeah right. How do you, how do you sell that? Like I, I did a consult <laughs> with, a, with an NBA team and a friend <laughs> of mine refers to the NBA as the no barbell association, but, um, like, when I said to them, what you exactly said was like, we need to get more intensity. We need more velocity. And the, the, the staff basically said it is so tough for us to get uh, these guys to do anything maximally. Like, how do you sell that?
3: Yeah, I I think that's tough. I think it's, it's something that happens over the course of seasons and, and you've got to have a little bit of success with at least one person who's, who's willing to do that. Um, And it happens over the course of time, I think, to come in and try to change an organizational philosophy in one season or in one, you know, one day is is really, really difficult. Um, And I think everybody's got to be on board. I think people, you know, if you can present them with some of the literature on on load and load management, that might be helpful. It doesn't help the athlete. The athlete doesn't care about studies, right? Um, But if you can tell them, hey, we're only going to do a 10 minute or 15 minute workout today, not a 45 minute workout, most athletes like that um, in season, especially basketball guys. So <laughs> I, you know, I try to just give them, I try to frame it around what they want, right? Hey, you want to jump higher? We're going to, this is what we have to do, right? You've got to kind of frame it around their goals, which I'm making it sound like that simple. And it's certainly not simple whatsoever. It's really, what, really difficult.
1: what about, what about, and there, and there has been a battle with uh, specific strength coaches for organizations. And then you have the athletes who have their own private trainers. And there, it's like living in, in two different stratospheres here. I mean, it becomes very difficult, very challenging. I'm against it, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I, I believe it. I understand the players' union. I get how it works. But if you're an owner, owner of an organization, coming and paying a pitcher 150 million bucks, 200 million bucks, you should have a say in, in the control, and you should have a say on who that you know, uh, the organization, I mean, should have a say in, in where that athlete is actually going. How much of that has become a battle? Has that, and I'm not expecting you to, to mention names. I'm not expecting you to, you know, throw anyone under the bus here, but how much has that become a battle and how difficult is that to work with?
3: Yeah, it's, it's really difficult. And I've played both roles, right? I've been in the organization when I knew that the guys within the organization had their own people that they were bringing in to work with them, on, you know, on the side. And then I've been the person that the guys have brought in on the side. Um, So I've played both of those roles and I do see it from both sides. I really do. I get from an organizational standpoint, it's a bit of a conflict of interest, right? Like anything that this guy tells me, I have to report to the organization and that affects their contracts, that affects their livelihoods. And why would they tell me all these little things when they know darn well, I'm going to go have to report it to the organization, right? So I don't always blame them for going outside, for some little little things, um, for some little things, right? And then at the same time, being the person who comes in from the outside, I always encourage the guy that I'm consulting with, let me talk with your medical staff. Let's make sure that we're on the same page. They're going to be more mad if they find out about it from somebody else, right? Like communication is the key. It's about you creating an athlete-centered model. What do you need, right? You don't feel like you're getting everything that you need from the organization. I can fill those needs, but let me communicate in the best interest of you. Um, and just trying to make sure that he, that that, that that player understands that for me, it's really about the best interest. And that's how I was when I was with the organization. I, had, I didn't mind if guys were working with somebody else. I just wanted to know about it so we could communicate. Um, and I think that's it, right? When you put your ego aside and you leave your letters at the door, put your ego aside and you work in the best interest of your player, then the organization, the player, and the consultant all win, right? But when the consultant's bad-mouthing the organization and the organization's mad at the player because they're going outside, right? Like that's when the drama ensues and it's a nightmare. Again, I'm making it sound like that's really easy but because everybody doesn't like to play nice in the sandbox. But that's my personal philosophy, um, that if we all just work in the best interest of our patient and, or our client, then, then everybody wins because that's really ultimately what everybody wants, right? Everybody wants... The person to be playing their sport, including the athlete, <laughs> right? Like that's what he wants to be doing. So everybody why, really has the same goal. Why wouldn't the
1: players' union be up to uh, open to that? Why wouldn't they be open to communication? Why wouldn't there be a stipulation to contract saying, oh, we have no problem with you working with Sue, who's not a member of the Red Sox organization, but you need to communicate with Mike Boyle." Why can't you know they just? Mm-hmm.
2: It's really complicated, Don. It's really complicated because I, I had discussions about the CBA um, for the NFL. And what happens with those those arrangements is that the CBA is trying to get, like, the big rocks. Like, in the NFL, it might be, we want two more regular season games on the schedule. So, we will give you guys – you can work with whoever you want. That's what they give away, right? So, it's not as easy as, like, what's best for the player. It's like, okay – you gave us two more regular season games. So you guys can play, you know, do whatever you want. Tom Brady, you can bring in whoever you want. Right. So right. there there's like all this give and take happening in these negotiations that make no sense at all. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's crazy.
3: It's it like, is. It's yeah. crazy.
1: So is that so? So you you see the exact same thing, and I mean because I know Derek's talking about football. Is that pretty much the exact same thing? And the baseball season, what, what, what do you have? One hundred sixty? How many? How many games?
3: Well, yeah, they've changed some things, but it was one hundred sixty-two games in one hundred and eighty-three days. So um, I, I haven't counted it out lately, but um, yeah, it's definitely. Um, sorry, of course my no dog is barking and my lamp. <laughs> Outside, so I shut my office door.
2: <laughs> Re- <laughs> so renegotiate go the CBA floor. with the dog. <laughs>
3: um, but yeah, I mean, everything's the same, right? I've, I've had the opportunity to work now in season basketball, football, and baseball, and and it's amazing the the differences, but the similarities a- as well. And so, yeah, it, it is sometimes about that bigger that bigger stone, right? That bigger piece of the cake and bigger piece of the pie. Um, and so they give away they give away some smaller things or it looks like smaller things.
1: So your, so your perform better talk this year is going to be on the nervous system, which I'm definitely going to come and listen to. Because I don't think I've sat through a full lecture of yours yet. And I'm embarrassed to say that. And I really it's okay. to, but I'm going to make this year. I promise I will be at one of those, one of those two dates. Um, as long as we're not talking at the same time. <laughs> <just two> <laughs>
3: That's the hard thing. There's so many people that are just amazing talking at the same time. It's hard.
1: Can you give our listeners just a, a little, and I'm not expecting to go through your whole 75-minute talk right now, but kind of in a nutshell, because there's people listening who are coaches, and there's people listening that are everyday average, you know, average people who don't train much, and they don't even know what the CNS is. So could you kind of get into detail a little bit what you're actually talking about and the, and the direction you're going to be going with your talk?
3: for sure so yeah i wanted to um i wanted to talk about the nervous system because i think that at least for me right i've been doing this now for oh my word like 23 years which is frightening um and i think for really the first 18 to 20 years, I spent so much time focusing on biomechanics and on the musculoskeletal stuff and teaching people how to move. Um, And I still do that. It's not like I don't do that anymore, but in the last probably three to five years, what I've recognized is it's not just about how people move. it's, It's about how people don't move, right? So the concepts of rest and the concepts of, and we've always talked about recovery and regeneration, but I've really been taking it more to heart in the last three to five years and when we look at the autonomic nervous system right it's it's a balance between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system and so the sympathetic nervous system is our fight or flight nervous system right when we're in a state of panic when we are in a state of survival and then our parasympathetic when it's they they call that the feed and breed right when we're we're comfortable we're eating we're having sex like things are just good right like so it's it's this balance between fight or flight and feed and breed And we really should be always living in a feed and breed state, right? The sympathetic nervous system should kick in when there is a a bear coming to attack us, right? Or or some sort of stressful situation. And what's happened over decades, right, is that everybody's sort of living in this really sympathetically toned state. Meaning, given our um, constant barrage of um, um, computers and iPads and phones and just stress and constant Working and so we're constantly living in the state of sympathetic, um, sympathetic nervous system state. And so I just use the example with my athletes. Like, it doesn't matter what kind of light bulb you have, right? You can have the most eco-friendly, amazing light bulb in the world, but if you turn the light on to the room and you never shut the light bulb off, it will eventually burn out, right? And if you turn the lights off every time you walk out of the room, you're going to extend the life of that light bulb, right? And so you are the light bulb, and if you keep on all the time and in a sympathetic state, your light bulb is going to eventually burn out. You're going to be fatigued. You're not going to be able to train. You're going to get injured. And so if we can tap into that parasympathetic state a little bit, that's a really good thing, even if it's just for a few minutes a day. So talking about that and the balance of the autonomic nervous system and how important that is to, to not only athletes, but just to all of us as humans, right? How many of your clients, whether they're the best athlete in the world or um, or someone who's just starting to train for the first time, how many people have digestive issues? How many people aren't sleeping well, right? How many people are just generally living in the state of stress? So, so this is an issue for everybody that I, I really wanted to talk about. And then number two, to kind of talk about the concepts of the sensory motor system. We tend to focus as coaches as, a, as the motor system, right? We want to talk about biomechanics and motor output and how people are moving. But what we need to recognize is that input dictates output. So if I alter or change the sensory input into somebody's system, their motor output is absolutely going to change. So when I start to mess with with um, or change or stimulate different things from a visual standpoint, from a vestibular standpoint, from a tactile standpoint, sometimes all of a sudden their entire movement changes just because I've given them a different visual cue or I put their head in a different position. And so just recognizing the fact that sometimes we, we coach movement, movement, movement in biomechanics But really, if you just change a really simple sensory input cue, sometimes you get the most amazing motor output change. And so to kind of talk about that relationship of input versus output. Um, And so, yeah, I'm super fired up to talk about it. It's not something that we usually talk about.
1: What do you, and I I think it's probably one of the most important topics. I I mean, I always say in, you know, training, I I think training is the easy part. I think everyone's always trying to put all the value into the training routine or they're trying to put the value into the diet. And there's just so many things that you got to put beforehand. And you see it especially with people who just are are, are trying to do all the right things in the weight room or, you know, in life and and they're unable to to flick that off switch, which is the biggest challenge that I have with the people that I work with. I, I work with people who live in New York City and they're on very intense schedules and telling them to meditate and telling them to breathe. It's, I mean, it, it's impossible. I mean, that's probably the one area. I mean, I've got one person right now. I can't mention a name, but um, he, the guy's a machine and his, I mean, I've had him sit with Charlie Weingroff. Charlie's gone through it. Charlie looks at me and he's like, there's nothing wrong with his back. <laughs> it's just that you can just see how he breathes and see how he holds his shoulders. Right? It's a Complete mess. But how do you, I mean, in, in your
3: opinion, how do you, how do you deal with that? Yeah, it's, it's difficult. And I, and I think if I try to just introduce it in small doses, literally like under five minutes as as part of my session. So whether it's at the end of the session um, or usually just at the end of the session or on an off day, um, and it's literally less than five minutes. So that way they still get their training. They still get their hard work, right. Of what they want. And then I'm like, okay, we're going to end with this now. And sometimes you get the guys, sometimes you don't. But if you can if you can begin to give some type of a result or show them, oh, okay, yeah, I'm not supposed to be breathing this way. I'm supposed to be breathing this way. They're all competitive. And so they want to try to get better at that. Um, and I've had a couple guys where I do some like abdominal work with like this ball, some like of Jill Miller's yoga tune-up type stuff where she um, does some of the, the vagus nerve stimulation with the ball and I've had guys in an NFL weight room where it's like blaring, weights are dropping right now. They're obviously done with their workout. We're in the corner just sort of working by ourselves, but they're like half asleep within two minutes. And so I'm like, are, okay, are you okay? And they're like, yeah, this feels amazing, right? Like, and, and then you've got them. And so then I'm like, okay, we're not going to do this before a game, right, (laughs) or before practice, but this is how we're going to end your workout, or on an off day, right, or on your Monday, like, this is what we're going to do the day after the game. They're like, oh, wow, okay. So as soon as you can get, like, that positive feeling, that's huge. And so, again, I don't try to make it a whole part of my workout. I don't try to make it an hour of, of my work. Three to five minutes. Let's see if I can get some type of pain relief, relaxation, something that hooks some, them, and then go from there.
1: Do you, do you almost put more value in that than, say, movement? I mean, I know that sounds like a very broad question, but I can't tell you how many people my, my, I mean, I, I remember recently, I went on a golf trip, and we went to this place out in, um, what the hell was it? It was, it, was, it was down south. There was not anything. You couldn't even run. I mean, there was literally snake pits everywhere. You were in 3,000. <laughs> where there was a golf course, there was your 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 bunks. The whole place was shut down for us. And we did nothing but just drink beers and relax and play golf and laugh, and there was no cell phones. And when I got back after three days, I was more mobile. I was yeah. legitimately able. Like, my body felt better. I started going through my dynamic warm-up. And it's just – I mean, God, I've been doing this for 20 years, and it's a reminder. Like, holy shit, I didn't do any movement. I didn't do anything that was good for my health, for the exception of actually relaxing – and look at the place it put my body and my mind. So do you kind of rate Absolutely. that above
3: the Yeah. And, you know, guys, some guys are more open to talking about it than others. But, you know, it's the Chinese had it right about yin and yang, right? You can't have day without the night, right? It's hard to have sunshine without rain. It's yin and yang. It's on and off. You can't always be on. There has to be an off, even if it's just for a few minutes a day. Um, and it's amazing. And I, and I try to, when I go through like yoga type stuff or meditation type stuff, I'll, I'll say that to them. I'm like, look at, this is the only three minutes of the day that nobody is going to ask you for anything. I'm not going to ask you to move. I'm not going to ask you to take care of the kids. I'm not going to ask you to do anything. I'm going to ask you to sit here and breathe. That's your job for the next three minutes. It's the only three minutes you've got today where nobody asks you for anything. So take it or leave it. And they're like, oh, you want me to just lay here and breathe? I'm like, yep. I'm like, huh. Okay. Right. Yeah. So but you have to, whatever they attach to. Right. And and it's, it's you, that's why I spend so much time talking, right. When it comes, it always comes back to your subjective. You've got to find out people's motivation. You've got to find out their goals. Um, and then I attach all of it to that. And I would absolutely agree with you, especially in the positions that I'm in now. I don't do a whole lot of training stuff with my clients in the situations that, that, that I'm in right now, I'm doing a whole lot of recovery stuff. So then that way, when they're not with me, they can train hard and that they can perform. And, and I think we're, we're seeing a shift, right? People are starting to recognize that there's a meditation center that just opened down the street from me, which is great. Right? Like, I belong to the meditation center. I'm like, geez, I used to work at the best gym in the world, and now I spend fifty bucks a month to go lay in a hammock and listen to bowls. Like being.
1: Actually, I actually did that at a place in the city, and I was shocked. It was called Shambala, or some meditation spot where I walked in, and they wouldn't. It wasn't even a membership; you just have to give donations.
3: Oh, that's so, awesome!
1: This is this. Oh, this you gotta crazy. love New York City. And me, I'm like. I, obviously, me, I'm Derek. I'm like, what kind of fucking business
3: model?
1: is this? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, well, what do I donate? They're like, whatever you like. I'm like, just tell me. I'm like, just, so I'm just, like, it
2: just wound you up more, eh? No, tell me
1: what's <laughs> that. The next no, thing you know, I'm just... Yeah, I'm laying there with these people and I'm breathing and suddenly I'm like, oh shit, there's something to this actually. You, yeah. you know, have, you
2: guys, have you guys done like the float tank sensory deprivation tanks? Oh, yeah. I have, yeah. I
3: heard yeah. I heard I wanted to stand my eye out. It was hard.
2: <laughs> I had a panic attack. Yeah. I had a panic attack. So
1: Dude, what's, you know, I've done it probably about a dozen times. And I still, I mean, the first time I freaked out a little bit, I got, a, I was in a coffin. I was in one of the small ones and I, and I freaked out. I like, turned the light off. I'm like, fuck that, the lights on. Are you nuts? Recently I've been going back and they have a much bigger chamber now. And there's like, a little bit of light, and they have music, and I'll find myself falling asleep, and then I'm like waking up, like, "What the hell's going on? What time is it?" What's the whole What's the whole science behind that, though? Are you for it or against it?
3: Yeah, you know, I'm I'm kind of for it. I haven't really looked at the science, right, to say, okay, what does this do to certain blood? are
1: relaxing, right?
3: But you're relaxing absolutely, and I think that concept of sort of, I'm a huge fan of water. I think I swam before I walked, so I just generally have a love of water, and I think you know, I've got some woo-woo in me, and so in a really woo-woo sort of way, I think water has really sort of healing properties to it, and so, you know, you can kind of take it all the way back to in utero, right, as we're sort of floating in a pool, and, and, and I do sort of believe, right, if we kind of think about from a, like a, from a DNS standpoint, right, just to add more letters in there, where um, we talk about the old system versus the new system. Everything that we have takes us back to that old system of flexion, internal rotation, adduction, right? So whether we're in pain, we're tired, we're frightened, whatever it may be emotionally, physically, we always kind of go back to that primitive state. And so to sort of be floating in that tank and be floating in the pool and, and to kind of not have pressures of your the ground or your chair Um, and to kind of have it be in a state where, yeah, you don't have a lot of stimulation. Um, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. What it scientifically does on the autonomic nervous system, I haven't looked into. Um, but I I know it's, it's an interesting thing for sure. You
1: know, I'm, I'm for it. I, I I just, I think it's as simple as wow. If you're getting, you're getting me to relax for 90 minutes and close my eyes and breathe. All right, dude. (laughs)
2: I'll run
1: right there, Derek. No. Yeah. Have you done it
3: Derek?
2: Yeah, I did it twice. The first one was a 90 minute session and yeah, the first 30 minutes was excruciating. And then, cause I don't even think I've been in a totally dark environment before. yeah, So uh, maybe like, you know, before I was born, but yeah, it was sort of like, Oh geez. I, you know, and I had to open the hatch a bit and then I settled down and yeah, but after I honestly, after, I got up and I felt like I was kind of floating like when I walked around so it had an effect. Yeah. So.
3: Yeah, I need to I need to dig into the science on it a little bit more but but yeah, I, I think it's interesting.
1: Well, if you get any of it send it my way. I'm definitely I interested will. in it. I'm, I'm probably going to continue to do it because like I said, it's calming me down a little bit so it's not a bad. Thing.
2: <laughs> well, you
1: could you could set that? one
2: up in the in the gym and you could do like the float tank and then you go in the freezing chamber and then, you know, go back and forth.
1: I had to get I had to get rid of my cryo chamber. I'm all oh, he did. Out. Uh-huh. Yeah, I don't know why? Because I, I had to bring a massage. I I have a great masseuse that's you know now friendly with Charlie and they're working together nicely. And there was just more of a demand from the, the clientele. Um, cryo was getting a lot of love from non-members. Ironically, like I think ninety percent of the usage was non-members. Huh. Um, I might actually I might actually change my office in, back into the cryo room and move my office upstairs and just and just kind of suck it up because I mean, I do love it. I mean, but again, it's, it gets me into a good spot. You know, I I have people who've gone into it and they, and they walk out and they don't love it. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's like, have I dug into research on that? I, I just, you know, it's cold therapy, isn't it? I mean, isn't it just as simple as cold therapy? I mean, what do you think? I mean, Derek's laughing, but seriously, it's, well, Does I just hurt? know I was, there, it, I was
2: there in the winter, Don, and they're like, you should try it. I'm like, it's freezing outside. Like, i will come oh, back in the summer.
1: Vancouver, for God's
2: sake.
1: <laughs>
3: up <there>. <laughs> <not sure. laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I mean, you know, we had one with the Dodgers. I um, and, and we used it a lot for pregame, quite frankly. And so I, I think there's... When you look at the, the science behind it, and I haven't looked at the more recent literature in the last probably three years, but but in the literature that I looked at when, when I was using it on a regular basis was really, it's different from a cold tub, right? So in the cold tub, you get in the cold tub and it's like 55 degrees or 50, whatever it is, 50, 55 degrees, and your body thinks it has a chance, right? So what it does is it initially vasodilates everything in your periphery to try to get blood flow to your limbs. And then it's like, oh crap. Okay. I don't have a chance. So then it vasoconstricts everything. And so that's why that vasodilation and vasoconstriction is why you get out of a cold tub and you kind of feel stiff because some of the, everything that kind of goes there initially, right? Some of the metabolites, everything sort of gets trapped in your muscles and you kind of feel stiff. So the theory behind the cryo chamber is that you don't have that initial vasodilation immediately. Your body's like, Oh crap. Like I don't stand a chance. I'm going to die in four minutes. So it immediately vasoconstricts everything in your periphery. So you don't have that initial vasodilation. You get an immediate vasoconstriction. Everything goes right to your core and you get this crazy hormonal response for flight or flight. Right? So you get this crazy, like I'm, I'm going to die. This is it. Um, and you get an insane amount of hormones. So then when you come out, you're in a huge state of like, okay, I'm ready to go. I feel good and awake. So we really used it as a pregame thing versus as a recovery thing. But I know a lot of people are utilizing it as a recovery thing. Um, and I, I'm not sure of the science behind that concept.
1: I've used it. I, I, I've used it pre-workout on people when they've come in and they just feel like complete garbage. And, and I oh, realized, really? yeah, I, I, I mean, it might sound stupid, but you know they they got off of a, a long flight. They're dehydrated. They got all this stuff going on. I'm like, listen, let's just try and get you into a, into a good frame of mind because you feel good from this. Let's get you through. Let's get you doing some breathing. Let's get some water in you. Let's you know start getting some foam rolling and just get the body unwind. And let's go into a recovery session. And I found that does help. Yeah. But I've done that with people where they're like, no, it's I feel worse. Thanks.
3: Great. <laughs> <to do> <laughs> <Right>, thanks. <laughs>
1: What else do you not like there, for a recovery?
3: definitely not every guy loved it there were right. certain guys that felt like it was it was great for them and there were other guys that like nah it's not for me so I, it is pretty person dependent
1: before we before we close out what are your some of your other favorite recovery modalities anything else that you really kind of go to or is it just all basic stuff
3: um sleep is a huge one obviously oh.
0: um
3: yeah which is yeah that's a tough one for me um and then I do a lot of I mean, you know, I I do a lot of dry needling. And so I utilize really specific um, recovery points for my clients to help from a recovery standpoint and and to kind of help balance the autonomic nervous system. And so um, to kind of utilize like a certain recovery protocol with them and it just sort of takes them into that parasympathetic state, allows them to sleep better um, and they usually just feel really good for it. So I, I utilize a lot of dry needling too.
1: Love driving you. In. So Sue, where can you tell all of our listeners, where can they find you if they want to contact you, Instagram, website, can you just fill us all in?
3: Yeah, absolutely. My um, It's just my name for pretty much everything, Sue Falsoni. So on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, Sue Falsoni. And then suefalsoni.com is my um, website. And then structureandfunction.net is my education company as well.
1: And what's the name of this new book coming out again?
3: Um, the book is actually out. It's called Bridging the Gap from Rehab to Performance.
1: That's awesome. I'm going to check that out. Is that on Amazon?
3: It is on Amazon. I will be happy to send you guys some. <laughs> Ooh,
1: you can autograph us a copy or what?
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome.
1: Well, listen, Sue, as always, listen, thank you for your, for your time. And I, I, I'm, I'm sorry that's taking this long to to get you on. But this is, this is great. And I'm looking forward to seeing you. Um, you said Chicago and uh, Rhode Island
3: uh providence and long beach
1: long beach okay yes, those are the tips so hopefully we'll grab some lunch or dinner or something like that out there we can catch up and i want to hear about all the stuff going on
3: that'll be awesome i'm looking forward to it thanks so much for having me on you guys
2: thank you thank, we could thank have you, you for five hours <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's fun to
0: chat
2: <laughs> okay. Derek, i'll see you brother okay we'll do a float tank together soon i can't wait <laughs> bye guys
0: take care take bye guys care. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.